This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. An autopsy is scheduled today for the body uh, that Calgary police believe is Talia Lee Mars, uh, Marsman. Uh, Edward Dalton Downey has been charged with two counts of first-degree murder. Uh, unfortunately, the worst has come true. There was some hope, there was some feeling that perhaps uh, this would not be the case when uh, apparently uh, Thal- or, uh, Talia was... Uh, I guess, spotted with a suitcase, leading some to believe that uh, maybe there was going to be a a good outcome, but certainly not the case that we found out late last night. To talk more about all of this and bring us up to date, Joe McFarlane is with us, News Director at News Talk 770 in Calgary, and he is with us now. Hello, Joe. What can you tell us? What is the latest uh, that you have? Yeah, it's uh, sort of, uh, we we had the news conference obviously last night around 10 o'clock local time to kind of uh, go through the details and to, to bring the, the obviously sad news. And you could tell that this was a, a story that police didn't even really want to tell at the end of the day in, in terms of uh, just the, the emotion you could tell in the voice of Police Chief Roger Chaffin as he kind of introduced uh, the situation and, and stated that the Amber Alert was over and that they believed that the body had been found uh, in just northeast of the city in an area the police had been searching most of the day, shoulder to shoulder, doing a grid search. It was a rural property, uh, uh, kind of a lot of fields and that kind of thing in the area. It's not quite clear whereabouts it was. Uh, the body was located. Uh, they went into detail about uh, sort of the the charges that were being laid. Obviously, as you mentioned off the top, two counts of first degree murder against Edward Downey. Uh, not a lot to be said in terms of the relationship between Mr. Downey and and uh, Sarah Bailey, and between himself and and Talia Marsman or Talia's father, for that matter. Uh, no question or no uh, no answers in terms of what the motive might have been at this time. Uh, Inspector Don Coleman saying that uh, it was kind of a it's a speculation at this particular point because the suspect wasn't uh, being cooperative with police or wasn't saying much with police and uh, so we're, we're still kind of trying to piece together some of the details that are are likely going to be coming out to, as uh, the days and weeks ahead go through with uh, in the court system. Joe, it appeared at one time during this uh, waiting period between the time that, of course, this all uh, happened and, and the discovery, it appeared to be some, you know, a, a glimmer of positive hope. It, it, you know, with the suitcase and the sighting, it, it seemed to be that things may turn out the right way. When did it appear that it was going the other way? Yeah, you hit the nail on the head, and I, I, it didn't even really feel like there was a, a turning point in in that case. I mean, you look at uh, throughout the pro throughout the whole process from you know Tuesday morning right through until even late yesterday afternoon. I mean, police did a news conference at uh, I think it was two thirty yesterday afternoon our time, and and they basically said you know we have no reason to believe that uh, she's not alive, and and so I I wonder if if there was a general consensus that maybe they were only just looking for evidence in that rural property or or maybe they were putting up a, a strong front and and we're just kind of uh, in that situation where you you expect the worst and hope for the best in this case and and uh, it was never really clear from the onset what they were searching that rural property for they were just looking for something that could guide them towards uh, finding Talia uh, obviously they, they found her just not uh, not alive uh, also, the headlines this morning are saying that she was most likely dead before the police search began. How do we arrive at that? Yeah, that was something that kind of gave it was one of those details that came out last night during the news conferences. 
there had been sort of this gray area where they believe they had believed at one point that Talia hadn't been seen by anyone other than her mother. Uh, after about Sunday noon-ish, uh, and then it was found a little later on in the week that they had been seen at a Dairy Queen uh, in the city's northwest, kind of right near the area where the, their home was, uh, right around 5.30 Sunday. So that, that kind of made the, the timeline a little little quicker, and then uh, then it was believed that she was seen with, with this man uh, leaving the home Monday around 11, 11.30 in the morning, uh, and obviously the body was found uh, the the mother's body was found uh, at about eight eight thirty on on Monday night, and uh, police saying yesterday that or last night that they believe that at some point between the time that she was uh, that Talia was seen uh, at eleven thirty with the with the man leaving that area and the time that uh, uh, that they found the the mother's body in their in their home at some point during that eight or nine hours is, is when Talia was was murdered as well what led them to that conclusion is is whether that's uh, you know the good old-fashioned police work or whether that was an, an admittance uh, I, I'm sure that's going to be a situation that's going to uh, rear its head and, and come to light during the the trial if it gets to that point it's interesting that uh, obviously there's very limited information at this time yet that came out yeah, there there is a lot. There is a little bit of uh, I don't want to call it lack of information, but uh, police in in these cases and, and here in Calgary, it's it's different across the country, obviously. But here in Calgary, police tend to to keep cards close to their chest in that regard, just in just in case they they don't want to necessarily taint the jury pool. Um, we've seen cases that uh, in this province where they've they defense lawyers will uh, request a, a change of venue for simply because they feel that there's too many people of people have. Uh, heard too many details and so they've already got their preconceived notions about how a case is going to go uh, and so police tend to err on the side of caution in these cases so even last night uh, the, this question came up about motive and, and it was a question that I asked sort of in a in a much more uh, precise point in terms of a lot of people have been asking through email and through texts here at the radio station and just people that I've you know that I'm friends with are asking why a child and so I put it in the in the sense of people want to know, uh, you know, why, was she sort of a, an innocent bystander caught in the crossfire at the house or, or whatever the case may have been. And uh, Inspector Coleman did, didn't really, he said he didn't want to speculate. He hasn't been told a lot. Uh, the, as I said, the, the suspect in this case not uh, cooperating, not saying a ton. Uh, so they weren't able to talk about motive on, on either of the deaths right now. But, uh, and the other part of it is the police are, are still, this is still an active investigation. It's not case closed by any stretch. And uh, Inspector Coleman alluded to the fact that there there very well could be other charges down the line. He says the only suspect as of right now is Mr. Downey, but that doesn't mean things can't change uh, in the in the days and weeks ahead. Hmm. Do we know anything about the relationship between the mother and the suspect? Yeah, not uh, not a ton, and and there's been some questions just in, even between the suspect and the and the girl's father as well. I know uh, Global's Reed Feist here in Calgary managed to get in touch with uh, with 
Talia's father, who said he didn't know the man in custody uh, as of yesterday. Um, he says he knows just as much as the media knows, and he's been keeping uh, keeping his ear on the radio and watching TV, looking for the latest. And yet, police last night saying that uh, Mr. Downey uh, was known to the family. He was known to Sarah Bailey. Mm. He was known to the father, and he was known to Talia. So, what the extent of that knowledge is 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 a big question that uh, I'm sure is going to come out in the days and weeks ahead. But certainly, uh, looking at you know, this, uh, obviously a lot of people do the the search through social media and that kind of thing. It doesn't appear like there was a uh, romantic relationship or anything like that. But that uh, you know, social media is is one side of it. Real life is another. Um, at the beginning of all of this, before uh, the body was found, uh, I guess many questioned whether the father was involved at all because of a history of uh, domestic abuse in the past. Um, the fact that uh, now he's saying, well, basically contradicting what the police are saying, would that lead one to believe that, you know, perhaps he still may be involved? Yeah, it's it's a great question, and I'm sure that's uh, again one of those questions that's going to come up in the course of this uh, of the the court proceedings and and that kind of thing. It hasn't been determined yet uh, what that, like I said, what that the extent of that relationship is. And um, there, there's been some questions that uh, I know we're working on is is the questions about the the criminal past of Mr. Downey in particular and what that all involved. I know there's uh, when the news came out last night. Obviously, the courts were closed. The 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 uh, communications people with Alberta Justice were were shut down for the night, and so that's probably number one on a lot of reporters' uh, radars right now is is to get in touch with the courts and find out what exactly the charges were. There's also some questions as to maybe some conditions that were put upon Mr. Downey uh, while he's in custody, and and which seems like a really odd sort of uh, thing to happen when you're you're in custody. It's not like you're being released with conditions. You're sitting there in a prison cell or in a, in remand. So um, that that's going to be a, a big question that's going to need to be that will likely be answered in the next uh, next day or so. What do we know about the suspect other than the contradictions in the relationship with the family? Do, yeah, is he known to police? Yeah, so uh, from what I understand, and, and one of the reporters that we have working on it, Nancy Hicks, is uh, our cl- uh, crime reporter with Global News here in Calgary, and she says that there's been some prior convictions, uh, some drug trafficking. Uh, there's a, a firearms related charge, and there was a uh, an aiding and abetting to influence a woman to engage in prostitution charge uh, that was laid in uh, 1998. So it's a fairly, uh, fairly long time ago. The the drug charges date back to 2008. Um, police had did, had did say that they they knew this guy well. He's got a, a violent past, um, and he, he's been known to them on on a number of occasions. So whether there was occasions where no charges were laid, but he's been dealt with, sort of thing, uh, that you know won't be documented, obviously, but. What we do know are there. There are some prior convictions on his record. Has the father commented since the body has been found? No, he is not. And and from what I gather, and typically in these situations, uh, families, uh, police will will tell families not to talk. Just again to go back to that point of tainting investigations and tainting jury pools and that kind of thing. You don't want to say anything that could uh, put a, uh, a jury selection or, or even a trial proceeding uh, in any kind of question. So there's, there's going to be a lot of uh, hurry up and wait, I guess, in a sense, from, from the family's perspective. And nothing from the mother's families, obviously, as well. No, not yet. Because they were quite vocal sure at the beginning be of this. down the line. Yeah. Uh, so where do we go from here, Joe? Is there a timeline as far as a, another presser with the police uh, on any new information? What happens next? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, there's the the timeline as far as court is is concerned. Uh, I believe Mr. Downey's back in court next week. I think it's Wednesday next week or Thursday. Um, as far as the investigation is concerned, I, I think I, it's probably safe to say. I, I, maybe I'm, I'm speculating a little bit here, but I'd assume that because of how uh, big this investigation was. I mean, in the police chief Roger Chaffin kind of alluding to a hundred officers um, being involved in this is is that there's going to be sort of that moment of okay, everybody take a deep breath, and, and but at the same time you got to keep the pedal to the metal in a sense, and and so maybe scale back uh, how many officers are involved, but they they want to make sure they've got uh, their eyes dotted and t's crossed in terms of uh, making sure that they've they've got. Uh, everyone arrested that needs to be arrested and make sure they've got all the charges laid that need to be charged and uh, and then they can go from there and, and watch this uh, watch the case unfold through the court system. What's the mood in Calgary today, Joe? You know, it's it's a tough one because this is uh, it's got so many different factors involved. I mean, we're we're supposed to be in a celebratory mood here in oh, Calgary. Stampede. It's a stampede. Yeah. It's the greatest outdoor show on earth. It's what we we're known for uh, in the city is is you know joy and hospitality and all that kind of thing. And yet there's you know there, there we've we basically put up with four or five straight days of rain, which doesn't really uh, help uh, matters at all. But uh, th- this news certainly. Uh, Really having a profound impact on on a lot of people in in a in a weird uh, in a weird way. Given that they don't necessarily know the girl, they don't necessarily know the mother, they don't know the family. Um, they, there was a lot of hope, like you said right off the top. Is there was a lot of hope that this was going to come to a, a peaceful conclusion. And even beyond that, is uh, in a weird deja vu moment. Is we came to the realization that it was exactly two years ago today that charges were laid or announced uh, against a man involved in the disappearance and death of a five-year-old Nathan O'Brien and his grandparents, mm. uh, Alvin and Kathy Lickness. I mean, it's just a, you know, that's two out of three years now where we've we've seen uh, very similar cases with Amber Alerts and massive manhunts and searches for for young children. And, uh, you know, you put add that along with uh, the disappearance of, of Haley Dunbar Blanchett and her father uh, in southwestern Alberta. And it's a, it's a really somber mood in Calgary. A lot of people are, are just beside themselves that uh, something like this could happen to a, to a young mother and her, her young daughter. Joe McFarland has been with us, news director, News Talk 770, our affiliate in Calgary, talking, of course, about the discovery of Talia. Uh, Joe, thanks very much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Anytime, my friend. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, uh, as we have two major scenarios on our hand, one, of course, uh, nationally and internationally, uh, let's bring in Ross McLean, crime specialist, security expert, RossMcLeanSecurity.com to find out more and check out his Facebook page, Crime, Power and Politics. Good afternoon, Ross. How are you today? I'm doing good, but as I was just saying uh, to you, to your guy there, I said, you know what? Thank God it's Friday. This has been one hell of a week. You know, one hell of a week, Scott. Boy, and you know, just even uh, yesterday and last night, watching what was happening in Nice, in Nice, and then of course, uh, finally, finally finding out uh, the fate of, uh, of of Talia Marsman, uh, it was just boy a double a double whammy in in just a matter of a few hours. Let's start with uh, with Talia. It, it seemed at one point, Rob that police seemed a bit more optimistic than usual in these sorts of cases, or as much as you can be, I guess, in that she was spotted with a suitcase, and it appeared that those that were with her 
uh, were, were hoping to, or going to look after her. At what point for you did you see this change? Well, uh, things changed when the police announced that they had somebody in custody and that they had a place that they were going to go search Scott. It's at that point we knew that the police had something to work with. And at that point, we knew that what the police were doing and they knew what they were doing was really in a race against time. Uh, the, the headlines today are that she was likely uh, dead before the police search uh, even commenced. Uh, how would that information leak out? Why in, the, in a time when we're getting limited information are we finding out that? Well, I, I guess for one of the police who, who have just taken on the burden of this investigation, they've taken it to heart. Uh, just want to make people aware that there was nothing that they could have possibly done. Um, you know, I, I'm assuming that what happened is, is the police were able to gather and get cell phone location information on their suspect. They were able to see that that car went to that area for a brief period of time and then left right away, and they were able to put together uh, with the time of death that had happened before the police were even able to get uh, called in on this case. Uh, surprised how quickly uh, this progressed. Uh, once they narrowed in on a, uh, on a suspect, it seemed to progress quite quickly. Yeah, that was really quite the break in the case. And it's because of the fact, and we've talked about this before, the way police are investigating uh, homicides and disappearances like this now is what they're doing. They used to just assign some a few detectives to it, but now they go at it with a gang approach. They throw the entire office at the case for the first 48 hours so that they can look and run down every lead, uh, every lead uh, in, in, a, in a fast manner rather than going through it in an analog way, looking at one thing, going on to the next, and going on to the next. It takes too long. And out of that, they were able to, able to produce witness uh, statements about having seen a man with a girl. From that, that led to uh, uh, the car that was uh, seen and captured on the video that they found. From that, that was identified and tied to the man, and the police were able to go and find him and, and arrest him. So you have to give it to the Calgary police. They did everything they possibly could to bring this case to a good conclusion, and they weren't, they weren't welcomed with that other than the fact that they've got two first-degree murder charges now. Uh, technology, no doubt, would have played a big part in this, even when you look at the security cameras and such that may have been involved in this. Yeah, technology always plays a part in this. You know, I want to I say this. You know, something rang out at me as I was sitting there uh, watching one of the police pressers rolling this case in, around in my mind, trying to make sense of it. And when they came out saying they're looking for a car and a sighting of the girl going with someone, it just clicked in my brain that this, this Scott is very much like something we all know too much about, an investigation that took place the same as the Tim Bosma investigation. Yeah, yeah. You had someone who was innocent, uh, taken, gone. You have a suspect, but you didn't have a body, and you didn't know what happened, and you're hoping for the best, and the police did their work. So I think you're going to see this investigation follow uh, the same path as, as the Bosma one did. It's going to be built uh, forensically, it's going to be built with technology, and the police are going to be dogged in building the case, even though they have a suspect who doesn't want to open his mouth and, and cooperate. They don't need him to get the conviction. Uh, do you suspect more arrests? Do you think there's more to this story? I do. I think there is more to this story. I think we will find out there's more. The police so much has said that that they are not closing the books on this. Their mind is still open to looking at it. And uh, as you were talking about earlier, it's become clear that the man who was the suspect was known to the, uh, 
to the uh, father of, of the child. Uh, so they're going to be looking at connections there because what the police are still looking for is the motive. Why would a man who was a friend of the family ha- want to kill a mother and then take and kill a child? Like, it's, it's pretty hard to put that motive together unless he had more of an involved reason in it. And if he wasn't that involved with the family, then what other motivation would he have had? And uh, you can be sure that the police are going to be running all that down as well, too. All right, let's move on to the other story that happened yesterday, and that being uh, what happened in Nice, and uh, of course a uh, a terrorist taking a a truck and driving it down through the center of a promenade, uh, which was blocked off, a street blocked off to just pedestrian traffic, and uh, mowed over all kinds of people, leaving at least eighty dead at this point. Eighty-four, I believe, is the new the new tally. Uh, how does this happen in a country where? You know, it seems to be on the highest of alert, highest of alerts that that any uh, European country can be in. Uh, just after hosting the the huge soccer match and such, how does a truck make its way into a promenade like that? Yeah, well, it's it's the old story of they pick a soft target, right? Yeah. And the Euro Cup was a hard target. This was a soft target, and I haven't heard quite the information yet. I'm hearing that somehow there was security around this promenade area. And this person apparently, this I haven't confirmed this yet, Scott, apparently claimed that he was making a delivery of ice cream that he had to bring in for stores in there, and mm. somebody let him through and into the promenade. So the, the main investigation to see if there was uh, some sort of security failure or letdown there. But it's, it's very tough to protect against this sort of low-tech terrorism. Uh, that can come up just about anywhere. Uh, That was my next question. You called it low-tech terrorism. I mean, you know, we heard this threat uh, a while ago from terrorists, you know, encouraging those who were followers to use any means possible in order order to to create terror. I mean, what does it get to, Ross, when someone's using a truck? Uh, How do we combat that? Well, that's that's a tougher question, but, you know, I want to point out that we had that exact same sort of attack happened here in Canada in yep. Quebec when, mm-hmm. when Private Patrice Vincent was uh, run over outside the Tim Hortons in his military uniform by a person with the ISIS terrorist ideology for doing that. So we've seen it before. They've used it before in England about three years ago. They ran over a soldier named Lee Rigby. They ran him over in the streets coming off of a base, and they hacked him to death in the middle of the streets. And ISIS themselves, I mean, this is almost unbelievable when I saw the videos of it, Scott, uh, when they're fighting their war over there, they don't have cruise missiles. So what do they do? They take trucks like those. They put all kinds of metal, scrap metal they can find all around to protect the front of the cab. They load the back of it with explosives. They put a suicide vest and a gun on a driver, and they say, here you go, my friend, it's your turn to uh, die, you know, for yeah. <laughs> die for your religion. And they get in the truck, and they drive it into the opposing forces and detonate it when they get there. So this is certainly an ISIS-used uh, tactic. Um, it's one that's designed to cause chaos and, and anarchy. And uh, look, uh, we're going to have to get serious about how we deal with terrorism and terrorists. How will this change life now? I mean, you know, we've seen you know, there's one, then there's another, then there's another. This one seems to be different in the sense, as you mentioned, because it is a low-tech terror uh, attack. How does this change things moving forward? You know what? I, I've, I've got a feeling on this one that there is going to be a bit of a turning point here. Number one, because people are getting sick, fed up about hearing about these terrorist attacks and having nothing to do with them. 
But the second thing I think that's really going to make this turn, there is everybody in the world who's reading about this, Scott, who can identify with this. Everybody can identify with being with your family or your friends at a public event like a fireworks thing, and then a, a maniac could come down and run you down with the truck. I think for a lot of people now, they're saying, you know what? That could be me that's a victim of terrorism, not just some far-off country or I don't know or I don't think uh, that it could ever happen to me. I think people are starting to realize, and it's going to bring it home for people. And I think there's going to be a lot more pressure on the politicians to have to start taking stronger stances to make uh, uh, big statements uh, to put a stop to the spread of this ideology, not just let it run and continue to have statements. I mean, God bless the, you know, the the president of uh, Holland there in, in France, but the statements of this only makes us stronger when this happens to us, I'm sorry, the time for that sort of talk is, is over. That's just rhetoric. You need to deal with this threat. Will this draw world powers closer? It's sorry, a, Scott, will this draw world powers closer? It, it's a common denominator, as you said. It's something everyone can relate to. Uh, it's going to put pressure on the politicians to do things. You know, one of the things, Scott, I like to profile, read people, figure out their motivations. But, you know, some of the hardest people to read are politicians because you don't know what their motivations are. You don't know where their, where their chips are owed, who they, who they have favors with, what agreements they've made behind closed doors that maybe go against the will of their people for doing things. Uh, so it's going to be hard to say that the politicians are going to come together, but I think there's going to be pressure. You're going to see pressure from people. Uh, about wanting the politicians to do that. And maybe, like I said, you'll see some changes in some of the governments as they come up. What about intelligence? Will this mean uh, more loss of privacy, more investigation? Will that issue open up again? Well, intelligence is something you always have to have. I don't think, we're, I don't think it's going to get any worse uh, in terms of invasions on people's privacy. You need the intelligence to identify these people. You know, I, I think, in essence, what's going to have to happen, Scott, is they're going to have to... Uh, get together, and maybe, uh, as Donald Trump said, NATO's going to have to get together and take on terror. They're going to have to go in and eliminate the base camps of these people in Syria, just eliminate them, and then start working their way back up through the countries to find everybody who identifies with this ideology, who's on your intelligence watch lists, and deal with those people individually without them having the support of the uh, the base camp back home. It's going to take a determined uh, effort with countries coming together in making a statement that this is just not going to fly anymore. Uh, you use the word profile. Is that a bad word nowadays? Are we going to change our perception of that? <laughs> yeah, pr- profile is a bad word. If you're, if you're, it seems if you're on the liberal or the left side, if you're profiling somebody, you're doing something wrong. Uh, you know, I was listening to uh, um, someone talk the other day. They're doing an implicit bias uh, test that they want to teach police. And part of the way they teach police about they have implicit bias, they say they show them pictures of two trucks, a, a Ford and a Chevy, and they say, which one do you like? Oh, I like Chevy. I, oh, well, see, you're biased. Hmm. <laughs> you know. So I think sometimes we go too far in this political correctness in terms of trying to deal with issues. Uh, anyway, we just go too far with it. I, I don't think profiling is a bad thing. I think profiling allows you to use your resources correctly. You have scarce resources for dealing with these things. You can't cover the entire earth with security and say that we're going to do it because we're all being even. It doesn't, it, life doesn't work that way. Will, in the end, will uh, you talk about the public uh, crying out against, po- or, you know, two politicians about this, will this be a call to crack down on intelligence? Will this be a call to crack down on people who are found to be radicalizing others? 
Well, yeah, that's where we're going to need uh, perhaps new laws, as we said, brought in. Currently, uh, every country is prosecuting terrorist acts under their, their versions of the criminal code of the law, which means they really have to do something first before they can arrest them or charge them. And there's not sufficient uh, laws or penalties put in yet uh, that can work to deal with and deter people and catch them because they're inundated with them. It's, it's almost, uh, you know, you could use the cockroach analogy. You just can't wait till one comes out, hit it with your shoe, and wait for the next one because hmm. you never solve the problem that way. You know, they're going to have to take a more comprehensive approach to it. They're going to have to give the tools that are going to allow them to find people who are leaning towards radical extremism. They, have, they either foster it, they support it, or, they, or in some such fashion, and they need to be put on notice that there will be penalties for it if they do it. And the penalties need to be sufficient enough to discourage people from wanting to be involved. I was watching a commentator uh, last night on one of the news networks who was involved with security uh, in Israel, specifically around the airport, and was talking about different layers of security as you get towards uh, the airport itself. Was that lacking here, or again, is it impossible to do that when you have soft targets such as this? And then I guess my follow-up question to that is, should this have been a soft target? I mean, if you've got that many people in one place at one time, you know, I mean, really, at what point does it become a soft target, you know, or, or, or something organized that should have been, should have had more security? Yeah, the, the trick for security, if you, if you have to put together high-level security, what you need is you need people who are all trained to the same standard. They know all the same things to look for, like those Israeli security people you would have been listening to or heard talk about the other night. You have to be trained to the high standard. You have to link and basically build a ring of people so you're connected. So if any part of that breaks, you can respond as one team and go in. But it, you can't really have high security when all you have is, oh, let's take these policemen, put them on overtime, move them over here. We'll put some security guards in there, too. It's not the same level of protection because there's not a tight defense there, if you will, Scott. So it costs a lot of money, and it's very intense to put uh, high security on a place. It costs you more than just putting a policeman there and saying, oh, it's security because we have a policeman there. It's much more than that. You need to have a, a network, a high security network to protect an area. And, and most countries aren't there yet. They aren't there yet for covering everyday events. We're just not there. How do you think the world is viewing this today? I think people are upset and fed up, as I said. I think they identify with this, uh, with this as, you know, the pictures, the names are starting to come out. I mean, there's 10 children, uh, Scott, mm-hmm. in those, uh, those 83 or 84 mm-hmm. is now dead. There's another 50 that are on uh, life support that could go either way. Uh, and this is, I think people are sick of it. You know, part of, part of what they're trying to do here is instill anarchy. That's what these terrorists are trying to do. They're trying to make the world so that you can't depend on the world you live in. You can't depend on the rules that are around you. I mean, imagine, you know, every day when we drive our cars, we drive them feeling comfortable knowing that we have rules of the road. Everybody stays on their side of the road. You drive on the right-hand side and away you go. But imagine if all of a sudden you couldn't depend on that anymore. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to introduce anarchy. They're trying to bring down, this is an attack on the successful Western societies. They're trying to injure the economies, the tourism, the airports, the travel, and create uh, just disruption. There's real anarchy here. This is a real terror thing, not just a lone wolf problem. It's an attack on Western society. Do people or have people accepted that this terrorist movement, this group, uh, of people that are hijacking this religion uh, to, to facilitate their terror. Do people realize that this has to be terminated? 
that we have to go after them, we have to win? I think people are starting to get there. You know, what we've seen, as I said, the politicians have all been talking, uh, for the most part, kumbaya, let's talk about this, there's diplomacy, why can't we work this out? We see all these meetings, they're going to talk. You know, there's an unfortunate time in, in, in life, Scott, where you have to defend yourself, and you have to act. You can't wait, you can't sit there. You know, war isn't, war is nasty, war is ugly, that's why it doesn't take place very often, but it's a necessity. Uh, when you have someone who is trying to wipe out your existence, killing your citizens, your innocent citizens, because remember, killing citizens is a war crime. Mm. That's a war crime. Killing any citizens is not a, it is not a combatant, is a war crime. So we're not seeing anybody fighting fair by the rules here. They're trying to break down uh, our economies and our, and our systems. I think it needs to be dealt with. Any more of this letting the pot continue to boil, I think, is foolish. They need to get together and figure out a program. Trump was spouting off, uh, you know, uh, about a declaration of war. Is that what's needed here? Well, I do, I do think that is what's needed. As I've said, even, with, even here in Canada, we, we rely on the RCMP very heavily to do all of our anti-terror work. Now, once again, they're a police force. You know, we need to have something put together that's in between. We'll go back to the British model of MI6, you know, James Bond. Mm -hmm. That's for military intelligence. And you have military intelligence that's able to work, rule, and disrupt and go out after things. I think we need to apply more of a a military uh, type stance to this, and that needs to be covered in legislation. And it needs to be dealt with that way until this fire is put out. I mean, that's... That's my opinion of where we need to go with it. It's, it's gone beyond a police movement. That's why, we, as I said before, we don't send policemen over to uh, Syria to fight. We don't send them over to Russia to fight or the Ukraine. Mm. We send military because they're trained to be able to do what they need to be able to do. Good point. Ross McLean's been with us, crime specialist, security expert. Facebook page is Crime Power and Politics. Ross, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks very much, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, yesterday we watched uh, the horrific story unfold in Nice uh, when, of course, a uh, a terrorist decided to uh, take a delivery truck and and, uh, drive for, with some are saying, up to a mile, uh, a couple of kilometers on into a, uh, a street that had been closed off. Uh, due to a, it's their it's their Bastille Day celebrations. It's much like uh, our Canada Day. It's much like the U.S.'s Fourth of July. Same sort of thing. Uh, lots of families sitting around. Uh, lots of uh, uh, fireworks and and just general great times. I mean, this is a, a beautiful uh, seaside resort where uh, people from all walks of life are all uh, from around the world go especially during this uh, this tourist season. And then, of course, to have this happen and the video of it uh, is just horrific. This is uh, the first clip, I believe, of just the general chaos going on last night. Uh, a tourist who happened to witness this horrific event. Everybody ran past me and I started to run. My wife got very, very frightened, so we both started to run. And our apartment block was round the corner from it, the, ne- the next street along, and we could hear the sirens all evening. And uh, what the president of France had to say. Why Nice? Because Nice is known all over the world, one of the most beautiful cities in the world. 
of the planet. Why the 14th of July? Because it is a celebration of liberty. Uh, there you have it, a uh, translation from the President of France commenting on uh, the horrific uh, carnage of uh, yesterday. Joining us now, uh, and I guess for what we know, a French man, a Tunisian descent, drove a truck through the crowds of revelers celebrating Bastille Day. 84 people have died. Many others are on the verge. Uh, Simon Palomar is with us now, Research Assistant Center for International Governance Innovation, and on the line now. Hi, Simon. Uh, sorry it's uh, such a day to uh, offer your expertise, but we, take, uh, we thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. Well, thank you, Scott, for the opportunity. Uh, is this terrorist attack different? Yeah. Uh, there's a, there are a few things. I mean, that's a simple answer, so I'll go into a bit more detail. Um, <clears throat> what we've seen in Europe the last couple of years, France in the last 18 months, where we've seen terrorist attacks, they've been clearly pre-planned, fairly sophisticated. You can think back to the Charlie Hebdo attack in Paris, the, uh, the uh, Paris massacre of last November, uh, the bombings in uh, Brussels this past uh, spring, or the, the bombing at Ataturk Airport in Istanbul just the other, the other month. They tended to be fairly sophisticated. There's evidence that they were pre-planned. There were multiple people involved. And even if they weren't uh, directed from the outside, there was clear evidence that uh, the, the perpetrators had ties to outside groups or were influenced by outside groups, whether it be ISIS or Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula or others. In this case, we have uh, you know what, what uh, Francois Hollande is calling a terrorist attack. Um, so far, it looks like it's only one person involved. No, no evidence of any other individuals being involved. Uh, no one has claimed responsibility for it yet. And rather than strike at a, a major piece of civilian infrastructure like an airport or uh, strike at a newspaper to make a political statement, it looks here like uh, Mohammed uh, Boulel, the, the person who's believed to have perpetrated this, Simply, and there's no, we won't know definitively why he did so, but it looks like he picked simply a target of opportunity. There, there are fewer, softer, easier targets than a, a group of people, you know, watching fireworks and having a, a party on the street. So this is uh, somewhat different in, in those regards from what we've seen the last couple of years in, in Europe. Uh, what's frightening about all of this, this is the biggest sort of low-tech terror. We had another guest use that term, uh, low-tech terror attack uh, that, that's caused this kind of carnage. And we all see how, how, easil, how easily this would be to do. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, other plans, smuggling in uh, weaponry, smuggling in building bombs, this sort of thing, it, it, it takes... It takes a little bit more, but this, you know, I mean, there's a truck on every street corner. Um, how does that change the game? Well, it, it certainly causes some anxieties for, for French security forces. I can assure you of that. Uh, right now, the assumption is that uh, Mr. Boulel, well, there's no evidence that he was uh, associated with ISIS or al-Qaeda or any other Islamist group. Police are certainly investigating that possibility that he may have had contact with them or was, in, or, or was self-radicalized and influenced by them, if in fact that was his motive. We still don't know. But to give you the larger context, French security forces have 
said over the last couple of years that the number of people who they are concerned about, and these are not just Islamist terrorists, but also there's you know a growing kind of right wing in France, uh, and much of it is much of it's sort of mainstream, but there are some people on the fringes of it where they're concerned that they may take up arms or commit a terror attack. French security services have said that there are simply too many people who we have at least some concern about to monitor them, monitor them all thoroughly, continuously. Mm. Uh, the legal the legal requirements are quite you know difficult. They need to get warrants, need to get authorization. So to see somebody who had some kind of grievance, whether it was personal, whether it was political, or whatnot, and decide to take something like a delivery truck and and turn it into a weapon. The, I mean, this certainly creates uh, it, it. Well, it's alarming, certainly, and it 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 really underscores the difficulties that uh, the French government and French uh, police forces are facing here. It's that simply if they have, you know, say a thousand people, which is one of the numbers thrown around, a thousand people of interest perhaps that have, that are associated with, with terrorist movements or associated with radical political movements, you simply can't keep track of them all. And then you have people who aren't on that list, like Mr. Boulel, who was on no one's list, according to the French authorities. They decide to pick up the keys to a truck turn it into a weapon, it creates a, it, 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 the imagination can race and come up with all sorts of scenarios, and um, a lot of them quite ugly, and it really underscores how difficult and in some ways unique France's problem with, uh, with terrorist attacks or, or large-scale violence like this, how, how difficult their position is. Is it their view on immigration that makes them a target? Well, assuming that the attacker here, that his motivation was political, and it was of the, uh, you know, the Isl- it was an Islamist political mm-hmm. motive that he had, there are a number of um, there are a number of theories about why does France attract this much anger from from Islamists, and and, and it's no one really knows. It's not a settled debate, but France has um, a long history of. Immigration from North Africa. Of course, France invaded North Africa in the past, turned large pieces of North Africa, Algeria, for example, into French colonies. And always said that, you know, those people who live in these French colonies, you know, they're welcome. They are French. They are now French citizens. They have all the same rights, privileges, responsibilities, etc., as those who were born in France proper. However, you know, that might be true on paper. In reality, it's been a long and hard struggle for many um, French men and French women of North African descent, of the, the Muslim faith. And uh, jihadist groups in the past have said that, you know, France deserves specific attention. Um, laws, for example, that prohibit the, the use of religious symbols in public, that prohibit, uh, for example, women from wearing a, a headscarf, those have been seen as particularly anti-Muslim by some, so you have large numbers of of French citizens of you know sub-Saharan African or North African descent who are Muslim who don't feel welcome in their own country, who uh, feel that uh, the government and and the broader culture are hostile to them because of their religion, and when you compound that with France's economic problems, you know France is a very rich country, but their economy is not growing quickly. You have youth unemployment. And you have concentrations of, you know, isolated people who don't feel welcome in society, don't have economic prospects. 
and there there becomes a a, a large pool of people for um, radicals to draw from. People who might not have radical views, but they end up in prison, and they uh, they can be radicalized in prison, or a very opportunistic, predatory uh, individual, charismatic individual can target them, and try to recruit them. It, it creates a, it's a particularly uh, challenging environment, and due to history, due to due to uh, the politics of France that make this uh, uh, possible. Do you think we could find that this is just a, uh, a disenfranchised citizen? I mean, it's entirely possible. What's well, important to remember, I mean, we live just north of the United States. Notwithstanding the shootings in Orlando or San Bernardino in the last year in the United States, which both appeared to be Islamist-inspired terrorist attacks, we know, for example, that in the United States, somebody with a grievance, a personal grievance, can pick up a gun and shoot up a school, shoot up a workplace. That's happened in Canada as well. Mm-hmm. And we all, we all know these. It's entirely possible that, uh, you know, Mohamed Boulel simply had some other grievance, some anger. Uh, apparently he had had trouble with the law. Reports are saying that he'd been unemployed for some time. What, what do we know about this? Sus- what do we know about the suspect? So far, very little. There are conflicting reports whether or not he's a Tunisian citizen or a French citizen of Tunisian descent. Uh, police uh, initial reports said that he was married. Now it appears that he's estranged from his wife. Uh, reports that he has a criminal record, petty criminality, nothing too serious, but enough to get in trouble with the law. So uh, in many ways, he sounds he does fit the profile, for example. Of some of the attackers in the uh, in the in the Charlie Hebdo mm-hmm. uh, attack, or in the uh, the November uh, 2015 attack in Paris, you know, on the margins of society in some regards, not fully employed, has personal problems. Uh, so it's very easy to come to the conclusion that because of his Tunisian descent, that this was a, a religious political motive he had. But so far, it's it's still very much up in the air. And he also could fit the profile of an individual who's simply uh, distressed, angry, resentful, and decides to take out that anger on broader society. Will this make us look differently at terrorism? Will it change policy? I don't suspect it will change the broad contours of policy. And what I mean is that you know, France is under a, a, situa- a state of emergency already. Before the Nice attack, it was under a state of emergency. Yeah. France has quite aggressive anti-terrorism laws. Where we might see some differences, you might see uh, the French government go into a, a push to raise the funds, hire more professionals, expand the security services. Um, right now, you know, this is very bad news for Francois Hollande. Uh, France is facing... Um, there will be an election in the next, in next, uh, I believe it's next 18 months in France. Um, uh, Marine Le Pen's National Front, which has been alternatively described as a, as a, a xenophobic far-right nationalist party, has done quite well. It's doing quite well in the polls. And every time there is a terrorist attack in France, her party does even better in the polls. And compounded with slow economic growth in France, you know, Francois Hollande, and uh, the ruling Socialist Party, they're going to look, they, they need to look as if they are doing something about, you know, terrorist attacks in France. They obviously cannot prevent them all. You can't look into the hearts of people and see what their, you know, their true motives are. 
uh, police don't have that ability, but there might be an emphasis on, okay, we need to hire more police. We need to hire more uh, intelligence operators in the armed forces who are going to be you know, listening to cell phone calls, who are going to be digging through emails, and we need to fund these better. And so I imagine we'll see a push in that regard to be seen to be doing something, that they're taking it seriously. But in terms of the policies that they use, I think it will be more of the same. Does this, and I've asked you this before, does this bring the rest of the world closer? Does this wake everybody up and say, hey, we've got a common denominator enemy here that we can all eradicate if we all work together? You know, that's a really interesting question, and, I, and it's a hard one to answer. Um, I'll give you an example. When you know, a terrorist attack happens in, in France, I think a lot of Canadians, in, uh, you know, France plays such a role in our history. Mm-hmm. We saw it with, when Charlie Hebdo happened, when the November attacks happened. A lot of people, really, in Canada, I think, felt horrified. This felt closer to France. Yeah. You know, we, we share this, this common history, common culture, common language. The, the challenge is we then start identifying, okay, you know, radical, uh, radical politicized a radical politicized version of Islam is responsible for this. That's undoubtedly true in the you know Charlie Hebdo and the November attacks and that may be true here as well. What that ends up turning into is then some people simplify it a bit more, a bit more and that the Islam's the problem. And then we actually I think lose something in common. Because for example, just a few weeks ago there was a, a tremendously large terrorist attack in Baghdad. Around two hundred and fifty people were killed at a at a shopping district in in Baghdad and it and it appears that it was orchestrated by ISIS and it was meant to kill Shiite Muslims. And in you know the western world in Canada this is this is reported on but nobody said you know uh, when we uh, when the Charlie Hebdo happened everybody said je suis Charlie nobody said I am Baghdadi or I am yeah. Iraqi. Yeah. And I think we tend to lose sight of that. So, you know, interestingly enough, in, in Kitchener, where CG is based, there was a, a rally, a, uh, a, to, a, a memorial, I should say, one evening at City Hall for the victims of the Baghdad bombing. So it's important to remember that, you know, when, we, when it does draw some countries together and realize we have, you know, common interests, a common enemy, perhaps, I think it's really important uh, especially for somebody in my position, to emphasize that. And in fact, we also have, you know, common cause with people in, in Baghdad that, you know, a certain brand of politicized Islam might be, you know, behind this, but it victimizes Muslims as much as it does yeah. non-Muslims. And that's very important to remember. And that can be a powerful call for unity and to work together if if we're careful about it well, and the way we uh, frame it. And we rarely talk about here in the West that the majority of lives that have been lost due to terrorism are Muslim. Yep, and that, that's absolutely true. I mean, and I believe I've said this perhaps before to you or on another program, that in many ways when ISIS in particular uh, takes responsibility for an attack in, in uh, Europe or we had in you know Canada a couple of years ago we had those two lone wolf attacks where it appears that people who sympathized with ISIS you know acted on its behalf. That's really the sideshow. The main event for a group like ISIS is what they see as a showdown between their true, pure, absolute version of their religion, and then all of these people who they don't consider Muslims, who are Muslims, who they consider to be apostates heretics and threats to their way of life 
and that's in the Middle East, that's in Pakistan, that's across the Muslim world, and they and and it's it's overwhelmingly Muslims, uh, civilians, people going to cafes, shopping on the last day of Ramadan, ready to you know celebrate the end of Ramadan. They're more often the victims, and I think that's important to remember that when we get hit, or when mm-hmm. Europe gets hit, or however you want to frame it, that we have. There's, there are people and there are governments across the world where we do have a common interest in stopping this sort of behavior. Is the world um, accepting the fact that this is a terrorist movement that has to be terminated? I think so. I mean, there's. Uh, it would be very hard in any national capital in the world to say, you know, find somebody who can who would say, you know, we can tolerate what's going on in the yeah. Middle East. You know, let it burn, let the fires burn, let them burn out. We'll just sit by and watch. That's okay. Very few governments are willing to say that. Uh, you know, public, you know, public opinion, and especially in Western countries, where we don't have a history of being subjected to these sorts of attacks, not like, not like other parts of the world where this is far more common and they're far more uh, resilient to it. We don't like it here, and for a good reason. We don't tolerate it. We expect our governments to do something. So there's very little disagreement between Washington and Ottawa and Paris, for example, very close in terms of what we think needs to be done. Even Moscow, mm-hmm. there's basically agreement about this is a bad thing. The exact way that you deal with it, though, the exact steps that you take, mm-hmm. you know, do you support somebody like Bashar or al-Assad in Syria, or is he just as bad as he is? Is he as bad as the disease in this case? You know, is the cure as bad as the disease? Do you support somebody like that? What do you do? Do you pump billions of dollars into these economies to try to rebuild them? Do you pump billions of dollars into the suburbs around Paris to try to pull, you know, young men in particular out of poverty and find them jobs? How do you do this? Who pays for it? Those are not settled, and those are tough questions, and uh, people will fight tooth and nail to get their preferred policy you know, adopted, but that's really where the sticking point is. Nobody thinks that this is a, you know, the situation in, for example, Syria, Iraq. That can't go on. Nobody's willing to, nobody's going to say, let's watch it burn, mm-hmm. we're fine. Some people say we'll put up a wall. I don't really think that's plausible. But how exactly, what steps to take, that's a hard question, and there's very little agreement there. Simon Palomar has been with us, Research Assistant Center for International Governance Innovation, talking about what has been happening in Nice. Simon, as always, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. That's my pleasure, Scott. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.